Morning, folks. The reading this morning is from Romans chapter 4. And from that chapter, we're reading the whole section that's headed uh, Abraham justified by faith. So we're reading from verses 1 uh, through to verse 12. Okay, Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Amen. Let's sing again. Why don't we just pray before we come to God's word again. Father, we've just sung about uh, you being our living hope. And Lord, the reality is in much of our life we doubt and we forget that. So Lord, we pray that you might help us to uh, lay hold of those words that we've sung. Lord, we we sing it really in in hope uh, more than anything that we hope really to be able to remember that and to hold on to that and to live out of that. So Lord, as we come to your word and we come to this most encouraging passage here, I pray that you might, Spirit, do that work within us to really allow these truths to reach our hearts and to resonate within us and to really ring true for us that we might actually live out of them, not thinking they're some sort of concept for other people, but seeing that these are words that are written for us and about us and as true of us as they are of Abraham and David and anyone else. So Spirit, ask that you might speak through me now and and work within our hearts, I pray. Amen. If you were just keep that passage open there in front of you, you'll find that really helpful. And just as we sort of begin, I want to get you sort of thinking together Sort of again, and uh, I want you just for a couple of minutes just to discuss maybe with the sort of people next to you, uh, or in front of you, behind you, uh, whatever. Um, what is the central idea of Christianity, do you think? So I'll give you a couple of minutes just to, to think about that together whilst I kind of get my notes together.
advice. Depending on your personality type, you either love or hate when I sort of force you to do that. But uh, it's good for us to actually uh, think through these things uh, together. You know, one of the problems uh, for the church in Rome was this whole thing of trying to unify uh, believers who had come from religious Jewish backgrounds and then come to faith in Christ and see Christ as the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And those who came to faith from completely irreligious pagan backgrounds and had no idea and no concept of the Old Testament and all the things it taught. And how do you bring these two very different groups together? And so Paul needs to explain how his gospel that he's taught stands alongside how it has historical and biblical sort of precedence. And it follows on from the way that God has always been. He needs to show that what he's saying has really got some legitimacy both to convince those of Jewish backgrounds to persevere in them, but also for Gentiles to see the value of the Old Testament scriptures. So, if nothing else this morning, there's one truth I want you to sort of see in this passage, and that's that believers are all, and always have been, saved by faith alone and not by works. That's Paul's big idea. But the thing I hope you'll take away from this, because there's a very practical part to it too, is that your salvation, your security, your standing before God, is not connected to your performance, but to Christ's sacrifice. So it's worth us just... uh, Before we sort of dig deeper into the passage, just having a quick catch up on the book of Romans where we've got to, because we left it off sort of a few uh, weeks ago. Paul has written this letter primarily to two main purposes. Firstly, to show how God saves a broken world. And secondly, to inspire the church there to keep going. In verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, we see really what might be the hook of the whole uh, book itself. That the gospel is the hope for salvation, it's the hope for freedom from brokenness, because humanity receives the righteousness of God in the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it's the power of God for salvation, both to the Jew and to the Greek, for in it a righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel, though, has some bad news for those who think that they're good. So in chapter 1, 18 to 3, verse 20, we see how humanity faces the judgment of God for their unrighteous conduct. And yet the good news that we see in verse 21 to the end of that chapter is that God saves us, apart from works, apart from what we do, apart from our performance, but through faith in Jesus alone. We see that salvation is given by God. It's not earned by us. We see that the gospel is good news for bad people. That God gives us what we could never produce. So I want to show you this morning, I've called this a discovery, a fortune and a prototype. Firstly, look at verse 1 to 5 there and we see Abraham's discovery There have been some pretty amazing uh, discoveries in human history that have gone on to shape human existence ever since. I wonder if you'll be able to recognize this first character here. I just have three of them there. Uh, I know he looks like he should be in a 70s prog rock group, uh, but he's not. He's significantly older than that. Uh, This is Nicholas Copernicus. Copernicus discovered that the sun and not the earth was at the center of the universe. Or how about this guy here? Looks a little bit like John Ellis, but with more hair, uh, I think. 
this is Alexander Fleming. Alexander Fleming discovered that penicillin could be used medicinally. It's gone on to shape medicine greatly ever since. Deeply grateful to him. Lastly, I wonder if you can recognize this guy here. He looks like he's been caught short needing the toilet, I think. That's a, I, I feel for him because I've been in that position many times. Um, this is John Dalton. John Dalton discovered that everything is made of atoms uh, and so came up with this sort of original atomic theory. And I think there's a sort of diagram or something that goes with it that I understand nothing of uh, whatsoever. Here in this passage, Paul shows and shares with us a discovery from Abraham's life that even more radically reshapes life. Look at these verses here, and there's a simple structure to what Paul is doing here. In verses 1 to 2, we see that his point is that Abraham can't boast where we can't boast. He's already told us that none of us can boast because we've not performed well enough to deserve God's favor if we were trying to earn it. But Abraham can't boast any more than us. No one, even Abraham, can boast because faith alone saves. Verse 3, Paul makes his core argument here that Abraham was saved by faith. And he cites a scripture to evidence that Abraham was saved by his faith, not by what he did. And then in verses 4 to 5, we show, he shows us that God justifies by faith as a gift. No one can boast because no one's earned it. It's been given by God. So Paul starts off our chapter here, what then? So what? He's still making the same argument that salvation comes through faith, but now he's moving on to a new thought. He's going to defend the sort of historical consistency of what he said. What then? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham. And the word there is in the original Greek, sorry to have to do this every time, it feels pretentious, but the point of doing it is to help you sort of see some of the context. The New Testament is written initially in Greek because that really is the language of the world. It's certainly the language of ideas that sort of moved across the globe. It's written in Greek and then we are sort of later having to translate it to English from the Greek. In the original language there, the word gained is hurisco. It means discovery, learning. What was discovered? What was learnt by Abraham? What was it that Abraham stumbled upon? An idea that reshaped his life and his identity and his destiny. What was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? That little caveat tells us two things. That one, Paul is primarily here speaking to people of a Jewish background. He's the forefather according to flesh. It descended from him, physically, literally, materially, in a way that most of us here are, uh, this morning, I presume, are, are not. But he's also saying that he's father of us all. He's a forefather to the Jews according to flesh, but his point here is going to be Abraham's the forefather of all believers, whether spiritually or by flesh. And there's an interesting thing about Abraham. He's a key character. Not only is it Christianity that claims Abraham as a forefather, but also Judaism and even Islam all see Abraham as a forefather within their faiths. He's a key figure. So why Abraham? Why is he so significant? Like the famous t-shirt from Maria Balotelli, we might ask, why always me of Abraham? Why is it that everybody is so interested in claiming Abraham as a forefather? Why does Paul pick Abraham as the precedent? 
of all the people that he picked to show his idea, Abraham's by no means the only one. Why is it that he zones in on him? Why is it that Matthew in his gospel, in his genealogy, wants to zone in on Abraham and David in the same way that Paul does here? Let me give you three simple reasons here. Abraham, and by extension David too, are figureheads of Judaism. They are the most recognizable names in all of Judaism. Secondly, Abraham and David too were covenant heads. That is, how God relates to them and the promises that he gave them affects us all. And then thirdly, Abraham and David too would have been Paul's opponent's argument. Paul anticipates that the place in which his opponents are going to go to try to tell him that his gospel is not consistent with the Bible would be Abraham and would be David. Were not these characters saved by what they did, Paul? And so Paul anticipates that and wants to show, no, not only do they not support your argument, they support my own. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast Verse 2 tells us he has something to boast about, but not before God. It tells us something significant about the way that Abraham was seen. One commentator, C.H. Dodd, says this, It was the common assumption of all schools of Jewish thought that Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. The idea was that God gave all the promises that he gave to Abraham, those covenant promises, on the basis of Abraham's prior obedience and performance. Because Abraham had done something good, God gave him a good promise. And just to show you, it's not just a commentator picking that up. One rabbi from the time, Jesus ben Sirach, says, He kept the law of the Most High and was taken into covenant with him. Therefore, he assured him by an oath that the nation should be blessed in his seed. And there's three problems that I've spotted with that. I'm sure many more, but three that I could spot. Firstly, how can Abraham fulfill a law that was written 430 years after he existed? Their answer is to say, well, well, Abraham somehow managed to fulfill it in anticipation. Twelve years of marriage has taught me that I can do very little in anticipation. I work much better under directives. So, to imagine that you could keep all the many hundreds of laws in anticipation, not likely. How can he fulfill a law that's given after him? But secondly, he's given a promise before he's ever earned it. Paul will come back to this problem in a moment. But problem three, Abraham doesn't always do what's right. You can read the story of him to know that not everything that Abraham does is commendable. The way in which he and his wife laugh at God as he gives those promises is not commendable. The times in which Abraham comes to God and says, you haven't fulfilled these promises. You've sold me out. You've held back from me. It's not commendable. It's not righteous. The way in which in Egypt he tries to pass off Sarah as his sister is not commendable. Places her in a position of great danger and yet this is the belief and this is what Paul is contesting here Paul has claimed no one can boast chapter 3 verse 27 Abraham is no exception he's been saved himself by faith 
So we must just ask, just before we continue, finish this section here, what is faith then? Because this discussion here is all about how we're saved through faith alone. So, well, what is faith? Well, faith, we might put it like this is a slightly technical, I suppose, but faith is an internal conviction that shapes how you think, how you believe, what you feel, your affections, what motivates you, what drives you, what you fear, what you love, what you want, and what you do, your behavior. That is, it shapes your head, your heart, and your hands through an internal conviction. See, Abraham wasn't justified by what he did, but who he believed in. And so all of these patriarchs, all of these big figureheads, they're not heroes that you can never emulate. They're thoroughly human, so you can relate to them. Abraham was only ever able to do what he did do, and he does some commendable things. He leaves for a city he doesn't know. He leaves a life behind to follow a God he's only just heard of. He believes a promise that he he struggles to even see physically manifest, and it says the only way he could do that was because he was looking to the future. But he can only ever do what he did do because he was looking to what God would do. Scripture tells us this. He's leaving for an unknown city, but he leaves because, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 20, he was looking to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. As he's living there in those tents and not seeing the full fulfillment of that promise, he's looking to the city that is to come. The city that Jacob reminded us of last week from that psalm in Revelation 21 that comes down from heaven as Jesus returns. Even his offering Isaac up in sacrifice, that great moment of trust in God, he only does it because he's thoroughly convinced he won't have to kill Isaac, that God will come through. We see that in the original story, Genesis 22 verse 5. He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again. A few verses later, he says, as Isaac is asking, where's the sacrifice, Dad? He's clocking what's happening. God will provide for himself the lamb. The writer of the Hebrews explains it. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, should it come to it. He didn't know how it would happen. He didn't know what it would look like. But he knew that ultimately he wouldn't have to do it. He was looking to what God would do himself. And so Paul turns to scripture. He says, what does the scripture say? So make the case from the scriptures because It matters that he can make the historical, the biblical case for what he's been saying. And the voice of scripture should ring loudest here. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's citing Genesis 15 verse 6. And the key word for Paul in verses 1 to 12 here is that word counted. You'll see it there six times in those verses. Counted to him as righteousness. Paul is quoting here from Genesis 15.6. says Abraham's belief was counted as righteousness. The word there, counted, again in the uh, original Greek, there is logismoi. It means to reckon, to compute, to account, to input. It's an accountancy term. It means actually sometimes we use as bottom line, the balance. Paul's point then is as far as the accounts, as far as the records show, Abraham was righteous because of his belief, although his behavior 
was not always righteous. We see this. This is declared over him before he's offered Isaac up. You can't say that him offering Isaac up was the source of righteousness. Here's this great moment of trust and dependence, and that's why it comes after. He's already counted righteous when he's not really done anything. He's followed God's call, but belief itself can't be the source of his righteousness. Because chapter 15 of Genesis begins with Abraham whinging. He's whinging to God and saying, you haven't come good on your promises. And in fairness, he's 75 plus years old and he's still childless. He's got a bit of a gaze, isn't he? You've promised me more descendants than the stars in the sky. I have none and I'm 75. I have difficulty getting up out of a chair, let alone anything else. See, righteousness is not a substance you possess within you, but a status that's proclaimed over you. It's not like Lance Armstrong, right? Where righteousness is this sort of energy that enables you to keep going. And you might start off okay, but as you climb those hills through the Alps, through the Pyrenees, your strength is drained. And after a long hill stage, you find that your righteousness, your energy is depleted and you need more. So that evening at the hotel, you need a transfusion of righteousness. You need a big bag of HGH, a lab-spun blood to help you through. You need a top-up because you've run it down. As you sin and struggle your way through life, your level of righteousness sort of falls somehow until you can find some nice righteous rituals to help you Get some more righteousness. You read your Bible, that gives you a little shot in the arm. You attend that prayer meeting, another little shot. You didn't watch Netflix, another little shot in the arm, your righteousness goes up. Righteousness is not a substance within you that depletes or increases. It's a status declared over you by God himself. God is always and only saved by faith not works. It's not that in the Old Testament we see people being saved by their works, by what they did, but now in the New Testament it changes and it's saved by faith. No, it has always been by faith. And now Paul gives us a contrast, the last bit of this section here, between two groups. Firstly, look at verse 4 there, first group. To the one who works. His works are not counted as gift, but as his due. To the one who works... His works are not counted according to grace, that it says, but as his due. It says actually according to debt, according to obligation. The one who relies on their works, the one who relies on what they can do to be approved before God, can only ever get what they deserve. That's Paul's big idea. And the tables are being turned on them. Because if justification before God is about works and wages, cause and effect, you will only ever get what you deserve. People like the sound of that, I think, don't they? They like the sound of that. Because they think they're good. They think they've done good. They think they deserve good. (laughs) Chapter 1, verse 18 to 3, verse 20, has told us in no uncertain terms. That is utterly delusional. Utterly delusional. 
Society abundantly evidences our universal ungodliness and unrighteousness. We think our works look so good. And they don't. We think that our works look like the great painting Ecce Homo. Behold the man. Famous motif. Famously devastated by a really well-meaning artist's attempts to remake it as the picture faded. was dubbed Ecce Mono. Behold the monkey. We think we look so good and we're utterly deluded. We've no concept of just how broken we are. We've rejected our God-given identity. Our identity as image bearers, as children, and redefined our identity because we believe we know right. You hear that every day. Every day. We reject our God-given identity and think that we're a better place to define ourselves, to identify ourselves. We've suppressed the truth and we sought to live an alternate truth that we've created because we think we know right. We think we know better. We've exchanged worship of God, the creator, for created things, for people, for positions, for possessions, because we think we know what's really good. That's sin. That's sin. It doesn't have to be heinous actions, though sometimes it is. It's the prideful attempt to live without God and in place of God. And this is a problem. Because we're told, chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath is revealed justly against ungodliness, against unrighteousness. It's not loving to allow that to continue. It continues to break and to distort his whole creation. So we trust not in our works, but in the finished work of Christ who lived and died for us. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. God has always and only and ever does save by faith. There's one group, one who works. His works aren't counted as gift, but is his due. You get what you deserve. What you deserve isn't as good as what you might have thought. But then there's another group. To the one who doesn't work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And there's the source. There's the active bit. Trust him who justifies. It's not even the faith itself. It's not the belief. It's not the strength and level of it. But the quality of the one who justifies His faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham's discovery is to trust in God's work of justification, not your own works, that faith is counted as righteousness to you. It's a discovery, but secondly there, there's a fortune. And Paul changes his attention a little bit now to David. And uses him as an example too. So it's just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The blessing, Paul is moving from proving his argument's legitimacy, 
to showing why it's better news. There's a lesson there in how to share the gospel with people. That they need to see how it offers more joy. So now again, Paul is going to look for a biblical or historical precedent. And so turning to scripture, he's quoting here from Psalm 31. Blessed is the one. And the word there means happy or fortunate. You know, we hate the idea of fortunate sons. People born into wealth that isn't their own. People finding a fortune we feel they don't deserve. Great song from Credence Clearwater Revival called Fortunate Son. They sing in one part. Some folks are born silver spoon in hand. Well, don't they help themselves? It ain't me. It ain't me. I ain't no senator's son. It ain't me. It ain't me. I ain't no fortunate son. It's a song about how the sons of senators, such as George W. Bush, avoided the draft to the Vietnam War because of who their family was. Some people in life just get a fortune they don't quite deserve, that they haven't earned. We don't like that idea. But the idea here is that we, that is those who've been saved, not by works, not by what we've done, but by faith in God's saving work, we have become fortunate sons and daughters. We've found a wealth and a blessing not our own in Christ. Because Jesus chose to leave his place of privilege to give it up that he might rescue us. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That is, and there's two pictures here of, of this that are forgiven, that is sent away. And whose sins are covered, that are covered over. Two pictures of forgiveness. That On the one hand, there's that cutting of the ties between sin and you. No longer identified with you and you with it. And secondly, this idea of your sins being put out of sight. What hope that is. In a world where your sin will never be forgotten. Your sin will always be remembered. Your sin will never be disconnected from you. It will never be out of sight. That's the sad, hopeless, terrifying world of social media. That you will never escape the memes. Through Christ, your sin doesn't define you. Your sin doesn't own you. And so the church is the place of all places where anyone can find freedom and find new life and new identity. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count, there's that word again, will not count his sin. Here's the second aspect to justification that goes with verse 5 there. It's both that we get what we don't deserve. That's grace. Being given a favour and a love from God we don't deserve. But it's also, secondly, not getting what we do deserve. The judgment that we should face is not given. Our sin is not counted. Just as much as his righteousness is counted to us. Because Jesus faced the wrath of God we didn't, that he didn't deserve. And was willing to give up the glory that he does deserve. We get a grace we don't deserve. And we don't get the judgment we do deserve. There's a discovery. There's that fortune. And then lastly, we see Abraham, the prototype 
for all. I wonder if you'll recognize some of these uh, prototypes here. This is uh, on the left, the Ford Model T. On the right there is Lisa. That's the first sort of uh, commercially produced uh, home computer by Apple. And then on the right, on the bottom, there is the Fender Esquire, the first sort of mass-produced electric guitar. Just put that in just purely for self-indulgence, to be honest. The interesting thing about all of these items is, for all the developments in technology, not much has changed. Cars are still, by and large, apart from the brief sort of dabbling with the Robin Reliant, four wheels, an engine, a couple of axles, some motors and cogs. Not that much has really changed. Computers don't look that much different, really. They still work essentially the same way, and not that much has really ever changed with guitars. And yet, I will still want more. That's the black magic of it all. Abraham is a prototype for all in Paul's mind here. He says, verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it only for Jews or is it for all? And Paul wants to show that justification by faith is how God relates to all, that he's consistent, that he always saves the same way. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then is it counted to him? And so he returns to Abraham because he believes that how God does this, that word counting, imputing, how that happens also answers how God saves all through faith alone. He continues the thought, look at verse 10. Was it before or after he was circumcised? Does God count someone as righteous before or after they make a response? Because Abraham makes a response to all that God says. He does obey him. And the particular way in which he symbolically does that is that he does get circumcised to mark himself out as God's. Was it before or was it after? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. What's the point? What's the point here? Well, was Abraham judged righteous because he got circumcised? Because he obeyed God? Before God judged him? No. No. He was judged faithful first. When he hadn't done anything, then he responded to God's grace in obedience. Paul puts it later in the letter. Gives you an example. Two twins, born on the same day, practically the same time. Before they'd done anything, Jacob he loved, he saw he hated. Before they'd done anything, he was judged faithful first. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The circumcision did nothing other than hurt, especially as an old man doing it. It's just a seal of what had already happened. The faith that was already there. The righteousness God had already given. What's then the point of this bit here? 
that he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why does Paul include that? Well, Paul sees Abraham as the prototype for all, both Jew and Gentile. He's the father of the Gentiles. Look at this. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's Gentiles. Because he was righteous before, that gives us confidence He continues, verse 11, so that righteousness would be counted to them, that's us, as well, in just the same way. But he's also the father of the Jews. Look at verse 12. Those who aren't merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of our faith that our father Abraham had. And Paul's point is, it's not enough just to have done the rituals. It's not enough to have just grown up in it and for you to be able to say, well, this was the date when I was circumcised, or maybe for us, this was the date when I was baptized, or this is the date when I became a member, or or whatever it may be. Whatever it may be that you look to and you think, well, I did that ritual, I did that sort of moment, that initiation thing, so I must be in. No. It's also about walking the footsteps of our faith. In fact, even, again, Paul is not doing anything new, even within the Old Testament, within Moses' writings. It says, circumcise therefore the forcings of your hearts. That it's not just about an outward sign. It's not just about an outward ritual. It's about you actually living this out. You're actually meaning this. It's about an inward conviction that reshapes everything you think, everything you feel, everything you do, your beliefs, your affections, your behavior, your head, your heart your hands and so Abraham is the model for those who may have been circumcised but more importantly walk in a life of faith you see his discovery to trust in God's work of justification not your own works that faith is counted as righteousness we see that fortune that we receive a grace that we don't deserve a favour and blessing we don't deserve And the judgment that we do deserve being withheld. And we see Abraham as a prototype for all of us. That he was counted righteous before he ever did anything righteous. See, Paul wants to prove the gospel he's teaching is how God has always saved broken people and a broken world. But practically, for us this morning, what's the point? What's the difference? Why bother looking through this? This passage shows us that because we're saved by faith alone, we shouldn't doubt God's love for us. Christianity is utterly unique in saying that your favour with God is entirely a gift from him. You do not earn it. You cannot earn it. You cannot lose it. It doesn't run down or run out. You can't top it up. It's either something you have or you don't. If you have it, then you have it. And that empowers us and frees us to live out of faith. To know it's not my own works, it's not my own effort, but it's Christ at work within me. It's the most utterly life-changing truth that's ever been discovered may not feel it as we sort of read it may feel very conceptual in a lot of ways it's the most practical thing 
most life-changing thing you'll ever receive to know that it is not about what you can do. And so in those moments of despondency where your pride is hurt because you're aware of the ways in which you failed, you're aware of the things that you just feel you're not competent and capable of doing, you're aware of the lack of change in places and areas of your life, and you feel as though there should be more, you're no less righteous. It's a warm embrace, but it's also maybe a punch in the face for some of us in places too. For those works that you think are so good, that you just think, well, this must leverage God's favour. He must just love this now. Now I've cleaned myself up. Now I've made this effort. Now I'm looking so much better. No, he loved you just the same. Quoted from the song a few weeks back from Adele, I drink wine. There's one part of it where she says, everybody wants something. You just want me. Christ just wants you. He doesn't need anything from you. Which is good news. Because there's nothing you could give him that would really sway his hand. There's no cards in your hand that you hold that you just think, I was doing all right, but uh, now I've seen that. I don't know how I could possibly work without that now. God of the universe, creator of all things, creator of every atom, calling it into existence with a word. You don't hold any aces, but it's good news because he deals the cards deals you the best hand you could ever be given, counted righteous by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gracious word that on the one hand is painful, it assaults our pride pretty ruthlessly, leaves us in no uncertain terms that we don't come to your offering anything that would sway you. We don't prize righteousness out of your hands as if you don't want to give it. But if we can just do well enough, you'll have to give it to us. But Lord, you graciously, generously grant it to us, those who don't deserve it. And we thank you this morning that for as bad as the bad news is at times of realising just how broken we are, and being honest about that with ourselves. You just love us because of who you are. Jesus, I thank you that you were willing to leave your Father's side, that you were willing to see equality with God, not as something to be grasped, but made yourself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death, but that now you've been raised up in glory and we are made righteous in you. Those who don't deserve it, who couldn't earn it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you might encourage our hearts to know in those moments where we feel disappointed with ourselves, deflated, maybe defeated, 
to know our need isn't to try to work up some more righteousness in ourselves, to hook ourselves up to another IV of self-righteousness, to make ourselves feel a little bit better, that we feel as though we got things together a bit more, but that our hope is to trust in your saving work that never diminishes or deflates in value. It remains the same, always louder than any sin, always stronger and overwhelming and overcoming all of our shame and all of our past. So Holy Spirit, I pray you might just impress these truths deeply into our hearts, that we might live out of that trust and dependence in you that knows that our life is safe in your hands. We pray it, Lord, for your glory and our good. Amen. I can invite you in a few moments to join us in standing and um, we'll sing a, a closing song.